Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Jesus is the head of his church. Therefore, we know that the word of Christ is authoritative within his church. Therefore, everything we need to know about his church, about how he's saving his church, about what he expects from his church, and even how his church is to be taught can be found in his word. Even the deep doctrine, even the sometimes hard theology, and even how to interpret the study of hermeneutics, how to interpret and understand the word can all be found in the word. The word is the standard by which we approach his word. Paul does something very interesting in Colossians 2, and it is consistent with something that he does all the way through all of his letters, which is that first he lays out the theology. First he has laid out the doctrine. First he has laid out his very high Christology. Only after that, and Paul is very consistent in doing this, only after he has laid out the theology does he then turn to the practical application. In other words, he answers the question, yeah, but what does that mean to me? And Paul is very faithful in laying out the theology and then saying, now since you know that, that's the point at which he will lay out the imperatives. But not just the imperatives, but also answering the question, okay, what does this mean to me? Practical application. And importantly, you can't extricate the theology from the application. There is a style of preaching that is very common in the larger church world that is really all application. And I'm sure you've all heard that kind of preaching before, the kind of sermons that start with Jesus wept and then immediately turn to, do you ever feel like weeping? Because it's all application. It's all, what does this mean to you? How does this make you feel? How do you react to this? As if the word of God is all about your felt reaction to it. So Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't start with application. He always bases his application on what the theology is. He always starts with the doctrine. He always starts with the teaching. And then the practical application of it. Now, he has just got done telling us, starting in verse 9 of Colossians 2. Oh, for those of you who were waiting for me to say it, we're in Colossians 2, and you can turn there. Starting in verse 9, 
in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, now I read all of that so we could get to the therefore, because you can't start anything on therefore. You can't begin a conversation with, and in conclusion. And so we couldn't begin by reading it therefore. We have to understand what the therefore is there for. It's there because Paul has now laid out the theology, and particularly the theology, that Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection also canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us that was hostile to us, and he took it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Tom just read out of Romans 7 where Paul says the same thing, that through Christ we are freed from the law. We read it last week out of the book of Ephesians because it's consistent Pauline theology that when Christ died on the cross, he took the law out of the way. So the language is not vague. The language is not questionable. It's not arguable. It's not debatable that what Christ did on the cross was not only forgive us for all our sin debt, and then he paid the sin debt price by making himself the sacrifice. But on top of all that, he took the very thing that would condemn us, the just, righteous standard of God, which would condemn us. It can't save us. It never saved anybody. And yet that righteous standard, Paul argues consistently, Jesus nailed it to his cross and took it out of the way. And it would be easy at that point to say, but Paul, that sounds very much like antinomianism that you are preaching. I'm often accused of being antinomian because I'm willing to say what Paul said and some of what I'm going to say this morning that Paul says is tough for us to get a hold of, and I will be accused yet again of antinomianism. Paul answers that charge by saying it's not that we're without law, it's just that we're under the law of Christ. And there actually is a teaching, a nomos, a law of Christ. It's just that we're not under Moses anymore because the law of Moses could only condemn people. The law of Moses could never stoop to help anybody. 
The law of Moses could never come along and succor you, make you feel better and say, oh, that looks really difficult. Let me lower my standard a little bit to make you feel better. All the law could ever do was condemn you, and that's all it ever did. And right here, Paul says that it is the certificate of debt. It's like when you go to the bank and you borrow some money from the bank. So now you're in debt to the bank. They make sure that you sign some stuff. They don't just give you the money and say, have a good day. Bye-bye now. They have a record of the fact that you are in debt to them. That certificate that you sign saying, yes, I have borrowed this much money from you and I promise to pay you back in these increments at this time, that's a certificate of debt. Paul refers to the law as a certificate of debt. You owe God. You owe God constant worship. You owe him constant righteousness. You owe him constant holiness. You owe him not to go against his word, not to break his law, not to go your own egocentric way. You owe him all that. And you've broken the law over and over and over and over again. Therefore, you have racked up all this debt to God. And you owe him, which is why Paul would say that the wages of sin is death. Now what you owe him is your death. And in fact, what you owe him is your eternal death. What you owe him is eternal punishment because that's what the law requires. So that's the certificate of debt. What were you going to do about it? Well, the same Jesus who died to pay your sin debt by making himself a sacrifice for sin fully paid that sin debt and then far beyond that took that decree that was against you and took it out of the way. So not only did he pay for everything you've ever said or thought or done that was sinful or rebellious against God, but he also guaranteed that you're never going to lose that standing before God because the very thing that would condemn you, he took out of the way. Mm. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, how many decrees? 613 of them. There are 613 rules in the law of God. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's a whole lot of other stuff. And you have never spent one hour of your life where you perfectly accomplished all 613 of those rules. So you owe a debt to God unless that debt is paid, that debt is removed, and then also that decree which is against you is completely taken out of the way. Because, as Paul says, it was hostile to you. It was against you, and you were against it, proven by the fact that you've never done it. The fact that you can't stand up to it is proof that you're against it, and it's against you. And so Christ took it out of the way. Those are Paul's words. How did he take it out of the way? He nailed it to his cross. What's a cross do? What's the point of a cross? Death, sacrifice, end of life. When Christ nailed the law, the decrees, the certificate of debt, when he nailed that to his cross, he effectively 
killed it. The end of life for the law, which is why Paul would say things like, but we're alive in Christ. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in trespass and sin, but we're alive to Christ. We're alive in Christ, Christ in us, us in Christ. That's why the language of being born again, raised to newness of life, because by the law and by your sin and by your rebellion, you died. And so what glorious happy news it really ought to make you sing free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has died and there is remission. And you ought to be willing to sing that all day, every day. It's very Pauline because you've been made alive together with Christ who has forgiven you for all your transgressions. Great news. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, which consists of decrees that are against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. And when he had accomplished all that, Paul could say, therefore, don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody act as your judge. Now, we're going to concentrate for a little while on verse 16. All of that before this was introduction which does not count against my time, which means the sermon starts now. So, oh, good. There was no argument. I'm so glad for that. We're going to look at verse 16 because Paul is saying something really astounding here. I hope that you're going to get some sense of why his Jewish listeners reacted to it as emotionally, dramatically, and often as hostile as they did. They reacted to it because he is about to say the exact opposite of what the law says. But we've seen that. We've seen Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount say things like, you've heard it said, and then he quotes Moses. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's right. That's in the law. But then Jesus would say, but I say... If someone strikes you on one cheek, give them your other cheek too. Okay, that's the exact opposite from eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He just said, the law says this, I say that. And so Paul is doing the same thing here. He's about to say, the law says this, but don't let anybody judge you according to that anymore. And it's a remarkable statement. So again, we're going to ask the question that we've asked several times over the course of the last couple of months. How does Paul get away with saying this? Because it is inherent. It is necessary to the text. In understanding the text, in a proper hermeneutical understanding of what Paul's doing, you cannot extricate the reality of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the fact that they stand in contrast to each other and that the New Covenant is not a recapitulation of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is completely, qualitatively new. That's why it's called new. How obvious is that? It is a new covenant, it's not like the old covenant. And when you first read of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, God himself says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, 
not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, which law they broke, which covenant they obliterated. So he makes the difference. God himself says, it's not going to be like that law. And yet, sadly, I grew up in church that wanted so badly to make the New Testament an extension of the Old Testament and would constantly reach back into the Old Testament in order to say, if you're really, truly saved, if you're really, truly Christian, if you really, truly belong to God, then you're going to perform according to what Moses says. You're going to perform according to what the law says. You're going to go back and, well, Paul's about to say, don't let anybody do that to you. And that is so very freeing. One of the sermons that I never heard in the legalistic church that I grew up in, never once did I ever hear the sermon, oh yeah, and don't let anybody ever judge you on that basis. Instead, what they did was judged me on that basis nonstop. So when I talk about grace, and free from the law, oh, happy condition. I'm not just talking theologically. I'm talking experientially. I am so glad that before I died and left this planet, I learned this. And how did I learn this? By going back to the authoritative word of God and reckoning the authoritative word of God as more true than all the church traditions I grew up with. So if you can get a hold of this, it is remarkably freeing. And you have to understand the old and the qualitatively new covenant for this to make any sense to you. Now, let's answer that charge of antinomianism just real quick, and then we'll dig in. Paul, after listing things that he says, don't let any man judge you according to these, Everything that he says is something right out of the law, and I'm going to show that to you this morning. So he's talking about very specific things. He's talking about those things that are found in the law. But when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul is not without a standard. He's not without a law. Because in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity passions, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay, how does Paul get away with saying that? Because the new covenant does have a standard. Because new covenant Christianity does contain imperatives. But they're not the Moses imperatives. You get the difference? You see it? So we're not anti-law. We're not antinomian. We're not saying, now that you're in Christ, just do whatever you want. Have at it. Go crazy. Instead, what we're saying is Christ is your Lord, very important word, and master. He is the captain of your life. And you follow hard on his heels, and you work hard to please him, not out of obligation and hope that he will save you, but because he has saved you and you do love him and you do want to represent him correctly here on this planet. Why? Because he's the head of the church. That's where I began this morning. He's the head of the church and the only way we know anything about him or what he expects from us is from his authoritative word and that's what we're about to look at. Get it? You got the big picture? 
All right, I think the introduction is almost done. There, I've just stretched my time. Turn to Leviticus 23. We're going to start there. I'm not going to read all of Leviticus 23 because it's quite extensive, but I want you to get some sense of what the law does say here. While you're turning to Leviticus 23, I'm just going to read in your hearing what's about to come in the book of Colossians. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those are all things that are absolute rules, absolute laws in the Old Covenant. They're part of the Mosaic Law. We're about to look at it out of the book of Leviticus. So these are not optional. These are absolute standards for all Israelites everywhere. Paul, writing to an audience in Colossae of mixed Gentiles and Jews, states, don't let anybody judge you in regard to food or drink or a feast or of a new moon or of the Sabbath day. Leviticus 23, starting at verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, those are the feasts, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days, work will be done. On the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work during it. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. And these are the appointed times, the appointed feasts, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then it goes on for the whole rest of the chapter. And in fact, it goes on into the next chapter. And in fact, if you get to chapter 24 and you look at verse 17, you'll see what I was just referring to. If a man takes a life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. And if a man injures his neighbor, then just as he is done, so it shall be done for him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it's going to be inflicted on him. There's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth rule. Which Jesus said, you've heard it said that, but I say, if a man smites you, let him smite you again. The opposite of that rule. If you would, 1 Chronicles 23. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First Samuel, second Samuel. That darn Joshua, always judging Ruth. Mm -hmm. All I'm attempting to do is show you that these rules are very clearly written. There's no question about them. First Chronicles chapter 23, starting at verse 30. They are to stand every morning and to thank and to praise the Lord. And likewise, at the evening, these are the rules for the Levites, the Levitical priests in the temple. 
They're to stand every single morning to thank and praise God and likewise every evening and to offer all the burnt offerings to the Lord on all the Sabbaths and all the new moons and all the fixed festivals or the feasts in the numbers that are set by the ordinance concerning them and they're to do that continually before the Lord. Okay, so is there any question that God expects them to observe the Sabbaths and the feasts and the new moons and the first day of the week? They're supposed to observe all of that. It's unquestionable. It's undeniable. It's plainly said in the law. Are we agreeing into that? That's right. Okay, so then how does Paul get away with saying, therefore, let no one be your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. How does he get away with saying, don't let anybody judge you if you decide not to do that stuff? Because the law says do that stuff. The law couldn't be plainer that you were obligated to do that stuff. If you are an Israelite, there is no question about it. It's an absolute law. It's imposed on you as a nation. You have to do this stuff. There's even an entire tribe of Israel, the Levites, who are dedicated to do the stuff. That's how important the stuff is. The Jews were very big on eating kosher, eating only particular foods. And yet Paul says, don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Don't let anybody judge you in regard to a feast, a festival, the observation of a new moon, the beginning of a month, or even a Sabbath day. To this very day, there are still Sabbath keepers within the larger so-called Christian community. There are whole denominations dedicated to keeping the Sabbath day. And they write to me every once in a while and condemn me because I don't keep the Sabbath day. Because the Sabbath day would be Saturday and we meet on Sunday. Just that very fact means that we all collectively gathered here, right here, right now, have broken the law. And the legalists out there point that out to me regularly. And yet here's Paul saying, don't let anybody judge you in regard to a Sabbath day. How does he get away with that? Because that's the practical application. That's the therefore. Okay, Paul, you've laid out all that theology. What does it mean to me? It means that you're utterly free in Christ because Christ himself said things like, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so here is Paul talking about that radical freedom from the law that we have in Christ. Now, this set of rules, this standard in the law that Paul is here saying, don't let anybody judge you in accordance to those rules, it is first applicable to the Jews that he's writing to because they're the people who would be, for most of their lives, keeping those rules, keeping those standards, and then they've come to Christ, they've received the Holy Spirit, and now, of course, they would ask the question, so what about the law? What is our standing now in front of the law? There was so much controversy about it that there were even some who would come from Jerusalem 
and go to the churches that Paul had established, like in Galatia, and try to impose elements of the law onto Gentile Christians and say you can't be truly Christian unless you're also circumcised. Keep parts of the law. Paul had to go to Jerusalem and argue this case. And he and Peter were on one side and other apostles were on the other side. And they finally concluded and sent a letter saying that they were going to put no other rules on the Gentiles. But they found a few rules that they did want to impose. So that battle between legalistic performance and freedom in Christ, that battle has existed as long as the church has existed. It wasn't just unique to Paul writing to Colossae. It's something he dealt with in Galatia. It's something he dealt with in Ephesus. You read about it a lot in the book of Acts. Everywhere that he would go, after he'd leave, there were Jews who would come in behind him and try to undermine what he had accomplished and try to convert people back to Judaism. So you can see why Paul speaking to a largely Israelite audience in Colossae, would say, now that you're in Christ, now that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, now that your redemption is secured, now that Christ has taken the law out of the way and nailed it to his cross and has also paid your sin debt, don't let anybody again put you into the bondage of the legalism that never saved anybody to begin with. So that applies to Jews, but it also applies to the Gentile audience in Colossae because they would be the ones who are going to have Jews come to them later and say, yes, Christ, but you also need the law. It also applies to everybody in this room because you're living and breathing and Christian and part of the church. And I guarantee you, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it's going to happen to you. Somebody is going to come to you and say, yes, Christ, but then you also need these rules. You also need my standard imposed on your conscience. And Paul very clearly says, stand in that freedom with which Christ has set you free. He's paid a very high price in order to free you. Therefore, you don't belong to Moses. You belong to Christ. And if you are in Christ and he's in you, you already have the Holy Spirit as the sure guarantee of your eternity before God. You're complete in him. What do you got to add to it? Nothing. What do you add to complete? I know I've quoted it a lot the last couple of weeks. Hebrews 10, 14. Go back and read it for yourself. That in him, by his finished work, through his complete and finished sacrifice, through his sanctifying of particular people, he has perfected forever those that he sanctified. If you don't think it says that, go look it up. He, by his single finished work, forever satisfied God's standard of righteousness and holiness, therefore allowing you to stand before God, Paul's language again, as righteous, unblemished, spotless, unblameable. What do you got to add to that? I can't imagine saying to people, Christ has made you unblameable and spotless before God, but, you know, you got to do a couple of things that live up to my standard to really be Christian. Uh, I don't 
understand that. Here's Paul's explanation for why you don't let any man judge you in regard to these specifically rules that have to do with the law. Don't let anybody drag you back to the law. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Verse 17, because those are things which are only a shadow of what was to come. But the substance that all those shadows were leading toward, the substance is Christ. So he says that all those rules, the entirety of the law, all of Moses wrapped up, all of those standards that God set on Israel in particular, all of that was on purpose. I mean, we see it when we look at the sacrifices. When you see animal sacrifice and blood flowing, it's obvious to us, the writer of Hebrews talks about it extensively, that that is all prefiguring the sacrifice that Christ is going to make. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could never take away sin. But he, by his one sacrifice, accomplished all that. So the writer of Hebrews lays out this gigantic contrast that is really obvious for us. He also says that, the writer of Hebrews again, also says that Jesus, by the rules established in the law, cannot be a high priest because he's not a Levite. He comes from the tribe of Judah. And nothing in the law says anything about a Judahite becoming a high priest. So he's not of the lineage of Levi. So he says he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a high priest after the first high priest that we find in the book of Genesis. And the reason I bring that up is Paul says, now if there is a change of priesthood, there must be a change of covenant. So the language is very, very consistent. There is a new covenant, a new higher, better covenant based on new higher better promises based on a new higher better blood and therefore the rules are different and the rules that the church is still attempting to impose on way way too many people Paul argues here that they're not supposed to do that which is why I began this morning by saying Christ is the head of the church, and his word is authoritative where everything within the church is concerned. And if that were genuinely universally believed within the church of Christ, we wouldn't be having all these arguments about legalism versus antinomianism. We would just let the word speak, and whatever it says, that's what we'd believe, that's how we'd live, that's what we'd put our faith in. All of those things, the new moons, the festivals, even the Sabbath day, all of those things were a shadow of what was to come. But the substance that was casting that shadow is Christ. Therefore, once Christ was on the planet, once Christ accomplished everything else that Paul has already listed earlier in this chapter, once Christ has died and raised again, 
He's paid our sin debt. In him we are made complete. In him we are alive together with him. We're forgiven for all our trespasses. He's taken the law. He's nailed it to his cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities that are against us as well. He's taken away every enemy that could possibly condemn us. Therefore, Paul could conclude things like in Romans when he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? On what basis can they make a charge against you? They can't use the law. That's taken out of the way. They can't say it's because of your evil demonic activity. He's the one who triumphed over those rulers of darkness. And it is God, says Paul, who justified you. So if God has justified you, what man can condemn you? Can you see why Paul would say, don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to those mosaic rules because they were all pointing to Christ. Christ is here. Therefore, look to him and only him. One of the standards of the Protestant Reformation is sola Christus. And that means Christ alone, not Christ plus a little something else. Turn to Galatians, the book of Galatians. Galatians 4. Turn there for a moment, if you would. I'm just showing you again that this is standard Pauline theology. This is something that he wrote to all the churches and he wrote it frequently. It's not unique or new to the Colossians. Galatians 4, I'm interested in starting around verse 8, but that's, that's difficult for me because I love the whole book of Galatians because it's about our freedom in Christ. I'll start at verse 6, because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir of God. However, at that time, back in your dead in sins, back in your rebellious state, at that time when you did not know God, you were <laughs> slaves to those which by nature are not God. They are no gods. And yet you were enslaved to them. You see, from God's perspective, if you are sinful, you are a slave to sin. You are not just performing sin as an option. It's not something you're just choosing to do. You are obedient to your master. And sin has mastery over the unsaved of this earth. Paul, once again, likens you in your former state to any one of them at that time when you did not know God. You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Isn't that interesting that Paul wrote that sentence, and I think if he had some white out, he would have whited that out. He would, have, he would have said, no, that's not what I mean to say. When I say, now you've come to know God, but more importantly, that you're known by God. He's the one that has ever known you. When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. 
It's that same kind of use of the word knowing that God has had intimate relation with you, that he has loved you in a way that he has not loved all of mankind, that he has provided sacrifice for you and a spirit to take up residence in you that the world doesn't get. It's important to know not only that you know God, but rather that you are known by God. If that's the case, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You've been delivered from your slavery to sin And you've been delivered from the obligation to perform in the flesh well enough to obligate God. That's gone. That's taken away from you. And how is it then, Paul says, this is why he asks in this letter, who bewitched you? Who changed your mind so badly, so radically, that you have forgotten this extreme freedom that you have in Christ and instead have looked back at yourself again? You're gazing at your own navel again, seeing if there's anything good within you that you can take before God. Who has made you go back to those weak, I like the King James translation there, beggarly. They're like beggars. They got nothing. They have no wealth. They have no authority over you. The weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Okay, what things is he talking about? These weak and beggarly, fleshly things. What things is he talking about? You observe days and months and seasons and years. It's the exact same thing he's talking about in the book of Colossians. Don't let any man judge you in regard to new moons or keeping days, keeping feast days, keeping Sabbaths. Paul says here to the Galatians, Somebody has bewitched you and convinced you that you have to go back to this. You're wanting to go back. You're willingly wanting to go back to the very thing that enslaved you. And you have this freedom in Christ right in front of you. Why? That's insanity. Why would you go back to the thing that never saved anyone And turn your eyes away from Christ, who is your utter and complete, fully sufficient Savior. Why? That's religious nutcasery, if that's a word. And it is now, because I used it. One time, Elder Ward used a word like that. And someone came up to him and said, you just made that word up. And he said, all words are made up. So I can make up words when I want. It's not casery. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, says Paul, that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. In other words, I've taught you and I've taught you and I've shown it to you and I've shown it to you in the scriptures and I've shown you the freedom you have in Christ. And somehow someone can come in and that easily bewitch you and turn you away from Christ back to the weak and beggarly elements of the very thing that enslaved you? Have you heard nothing I've said? Do you understand nothing of Christ? 
So Paul is adamant about this theology. He's adamant about this application. He's adamant in saying, don't go back to the law. The whole book of Hebrews is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. Is that obvious enough? A Hebrew writing to Hebrews, and he writes extensively about not going back to the law. Because naturally, Hebrews who had grown up in the law, Jews who were raised in obedience to the law, naturally, they would want to bring a little bit of that legalism with them in their Christianity. And so these letters in the New Testament are just absolutely adamant about the fact that the new covenant is qualitatively new. It's not like the old. It's completely different. And it's different primarily in the fact that Jesus is the sign and the seal of it. He is the substance that casts the shadow over the law. Everything in the law was pointing toward him. And once you get to him, the law has done its job. It was there to point you to him. It was there to show you how guilty you are and to show you that you can't save yourself. Therefore, you would look for a savior because you can't be the savior. And then you would find Christ. You would know God. Rather, he would know you. And you don't need that anymore. You don't need the law anymore. You don't need the dictates that were set up to condemn you because he has utterly and completely paid for your sin debt. And that's why Paul uses that language of sin indebtedness so often, because he wants you to know that if you're not in Christ, you got to pay. There's a price to be paid to a holy, righteous, eternal God, and that means the payment is also eternal. And you don't want that. So get to Christ. Get to the answer. Stick to Christ. Stay in Christ. Utterly and completely. Not mostly Christ. And a little bit of, you know, my favorite dictate. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Oh, but Paul's not done. He's going to use a particular Greek word here that is translated defrauding you of your prize. It took five English words to translate the one Greek word. What it means is, Those people who want to draw you away from Christ and back to the law are lying to you on purpose because they are attempting to beguile you out of your reward. Why would you do that? Now you can see why Paul would say, don't let people judge you. In regard to these legal things, don't let anybody judge you because what they're going to do, if you listen to them, is that they're going to take you back to the law, and then, as Paul says, Christ is no help to you. If you're seeking to be justified by the law, 
Christ is no help to you, and you have fallen from grace. So you're not under the covering of grace, and you don't have the sacrificial work of Christ on your behalf. Therefore, you're going to stand before God, and he's going to judge you on the basis of your works, because that's what you're begging for by saying you're going to do the law. So somebody has defrauded you out of your reward. This is fierce language. There's no question about it. Paul is just using language here that is utterly denouncing anybody that would act like that. Because he realizes that this is life and death stuff. This is eternal life and eternal death stuff. And so he uses language that is just brutal in order to say, People who would draw you back to the law, they're stealing from you. They're defrauding you. They're trying to condemn you and take that prize of eternal life away from you so that God is forced to judge you on the basis of you. Anybody here had a good look at you lately? Because I know people who don't like me. And yet... God who knows everything about me. I mean, the person who knows me best on the planet doesn't know everything about me. God knows everything about me. And I'm going to go to him and say, judge me on the basis of me. First off, what ego, (laughs) what pride and arrogance. And secondly, I might as well add, and oh yeah, lake of fire sounds good. Because if he judges me on the basis of me, I'm an eternally dead man. So again, like Paul is continually arguing here, why would I want that? Who has changed your mind? Who has bewitched you? Who has undermined you? Who has stolen your reward away from you? Who has convinced you that you got to add a little bit of the law to Jesus? Jesus either did it all completely, totally, which again, listen to the language. I began today by reading it. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. In him, you're made complete. He's the head over all rule and authority. In him, you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The removal of the body of your sinful flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And you've buried with him in baptism. And you're raised up with him through faith in the working of God. And he raised him from the dead. He's going to raise you from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and your uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. And he forgave your transgressions. And he canceled out the certificate of debt that consisted of decrees that were against you and which were hostile to you. And he's taken all of that out of the way. And he's nailed it to his cross. He's disarmed the heavenly rulers and authorities, the evil that permeates this world that would try to suppress you and keep you back and separate you from Christ He made an open public display of them. He triumphed over them completely. He has saved you utterly and completely. There's not one element of your salvation that is missing from the list I just read. Why do you need to add something? And worse, why would you listen to somebody who told you you needed to add something? Because Paul says, don't let them do it. They're defrauding you. Let no one keep defrauding you of 
your reward, your prize by doing stuff, by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on things he's never seen, inflated for no good reason by his fleshly mind. Why would you listen to a person like that? Why would you listen to somebody who will talk about things he doesn't know what he's talking about? Don't let people keep defrauding you of your reward. By delighting in self-abasement, people who are proud of their legalism to this very day. It's true in Paul's day. It's true today. People who are proud of their legalism and therefore want to impose it on you too because they have decided that that is the standard that God holds for some reason. When they do that, they're not only defrauding you, but they're delighting in abasing you. They're delighting in making you say, okay, my flesh is the problem, but watch me, watch me be so obedient that God is pleased with me. Watch me go, I'm delighting in my self-abasement, which is what legalism is. Paul says, why would you listen to them? And then I told you in the introduction to the book of Colossians that there was a very prominent angel cult in Colossae. There were temples to angels, people were worshiping angels, and people were claiming to get visions, information, Gnostic information, that the angels were bringing them. And so this is the only place in the whole New Testament where Paul uses this particular phrase, because it was unique to Colossae, that they were dealing with that angel cult. And he was saying, why would you listen to somebody who's involved in the worship of angels, who then takes his stand on things he hasn't seen? Angels are not delivering some new revelation outside of the word of God. Again, I began this morning by saying the word of God is authoritative in the church of Christ. And so if you're hearing things that people are saying, I got this vision, I got this revelation that now I need to pass on to you and you need to pay attention to it. Paul says, they don't know what they're talking about. Because if it's not in the word, it's just people claiming visions that they haven't really had. And why are they doing that? Because they're inflated, egocentric, puffed up, for no good reason, in their fleshly mind. And remember, this is the same Paul who keeps using the word flesh as a negative. He's the one who keeps saying, it's your flesh that's your problem. And now there are people who, through their own fleshly imagination, in order to gain some superiority over you and get you to behave according to their standard, and in so doing are going to defraud you of your reward, you're going to listen to them? Why would you listen to them? Paul's very clear in saying they don't know what they're talking about. Is it worth saying this. I'm going to say it, and you're all going to go, yeah, well, that's true. There are great big churches in America and the world right now 
based on people having visions, unique theologies, unbiblical ideas, things that cannot be found in the word, and they blame it on the Holy Ghost, and they say, angels visited me. Oh, look, an angel. Remember him? Yeah, and, and it built a great big church on that. Why? Why did anybody darken the doors of those churches? Why does anybody go to the converted sports stadium in Texas? Why does anybody go there? Why does anybody listen to that? It's because they are not paying attention to the word of God, which is supposed to be authoritative in the church of Christ. Instead, they're listening to all these tangential voices who the word of God says they don't know what they're talking about. So if you just paid attention to the word of God, you would not listen to them. And yet so many people are listening to them that they build these gigantic edifices to themselves. So can you see how contemporary Paul's warning is? It's not just for the church at Colossae. It's for us to this very day because legalism, ecstatic visions, people coming up with new Gnostic revelations, that's every bit as prevalent in the church today as it was in Paul's day because people don't change. This is what humans are like and human flesh will always gravitate to whatever inflates our fleshly mind. And because that is an inherent human nature, if somebody is willing to preach a theology that is attractive to your flesh and to your fleshly mind, one that says you're great, you're fine, you're doing good, God thinks you're a handful of aces. People just gravitate to that because they want to hear how good they are. And the Bible says you're just inflating your fleshly mind, you are puffed up in your pride and your ego. So now I'm going to ask the question again. What is the most often cited sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. And Paul says the people promoting that kind of thinking are doing it because of pride. Now you can see why he said it's their fleshly mind. It's all based in sin and ego. And those are the people you're going to let persuade you. Paul is adamant. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has not seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. I'm nearly done, because we got to where I started. I began my first statement this morning, was Christ is the head of the church. It's the first thing I said, and I said it on purpose. Because Christ is the head of the church. And if you're not holding to him, you're going to fall for everything else. Because all of these people 
all of these frauds who are defrauding other people, all these legalists, all these delighting in self-abasement, worshiping angels, having visions that they have not seen, all these people inflated without cause by their fleshly minds, the reason that they get away with that is because they are not holding tight to the head from whom the entire body, that's us, is being supplied and held together like joints and ligaments. And we grow with a growth which comes right from God. We're told to grow in Jesus Christ. Paul keeps saying it. As an individual and as a body, we're to grow in Jesus Christ. And where our biblical theology, our thinking, our doctrine, our practice, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, all of it needs to be drawn from the word of Christ because the word of Christ is authoritative and we're the church of Christ. And we as a body are called to grow together in the knowledge of Christ. And that's why we do what we do here and constantly tell you, and I will constantly tell you because the Bible constantly tells you it's Christ, it's all Christ, it's completely Christ, and it just can't be you. Get over yourself. Take sides with God against yourself and cling for all you've got. Cling with every muscle in your body. Cling to Jesus Christ. And don't let anybody dissuade you from that. Amen. Christ is the head of his church. Christ's word is authoritative in his church. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>